All right, I invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 9, as we're continuing through the scriptures together in the book of Mark. I'm going to look again at the end of the story of the transfiguration. I'm going to be in Mark chapter 9, we'll start in verse 7 here in just a second. Um, The verse that we're going to look at, we're really going to focus on one verse today, and it's a verse that addresses... Probably uh, a question that has been in the top three of um, the most asked theological questions of my time in the ministry. And I was thinking about that this week. It's probably in the top three. And the question is this. It's why did Jesus have to die? That's the question. Why did Jesus have to die? When we sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden... And, you know, most people get that we were separated from God, that we lost relationship with God because of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Most people get that. But the question I've been asked a lot is why then, in order to reconcile us back to God, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Why couldn't God just look at the sin of Adam and Eve and say, you know what, it's no big deal, let's move past this, let's get on with this. Why did Jesus actually have to come from heaven to earth, live a perfect life, die on a Roman cross, be tortured, crucified, die, and then be resurrected three days later? Why did that have to happen in order for us to be reconciled to God? Well, there's one little verse at the end of the story of the transfiguration that I think is one of those verses a lot of times we just breeze past when we're reading the Bible, we don't pay much attention to it. But it really goes a long way in answering the question, why did Jesus have to die in order for us to be forgiven of our sins and therefore have relationship, this face-to-face relationship with God that I talked about last week? And last week, we started the story of the transfiguration. If you remember, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. He invites them up on the mountain. The scripture says he's transfigured before them. It's a Greek word that means uh, physical transformation, experience a physical metamorphosis right in front of their eyes. We talked about he did that to reveal some things to the disciples, to us and to the disciples about what was about to come and then who he really was and is. And the first thing we looked at last week that Jesus revealed to the disciples was that he is God. That he's not just a man made of flesh, but that he is God in the flesh. The scripture says that when he was transfigured, changed in appearance in front of the disciples, his face shone like the sun. Now, this was different than uh, Moses and Moses' interaction with God in Mount Mount Sinai because Moses, the scripture says, reflected the glory of God when he encountered the presence of God. But Jesus wasn't reflecting the glory of God. Jesus, the, uh, the glory of God was emanating from him. And that's why John, who was up on the mountain of transfiguration, in John chapter 1, verse 14, he says, and the word, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And we saw his glory. And so that's what Jesus is revealing to us, to them. Hey, I'm God. I'm not just a man, but I'm God in the flesh. Second thing, we talked a lot about this last week. We talked about how the disciples was revealing that through him, through Jesus, we can regain the deepest longing of our hearts. That the deepest longing of the human heart is to see and experience the face and the embrace of God. Moses was up on the mountain. He, God's promised him all this stuff. I'm going to give you the law. I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments. I'm going to give you the promised land. And the thing that Moses wanted more than anything else, he said, God, I just want to see your face. God, please just let me see your face. And God said, no, you can't see my face because anyone who sees my face 
dies. We talked about how that when you see the face of God, because we're sinful and he's holy, one of two things happen. One, you die. Or two, you don't see the face of God, but you get around his presence. Maybe you hear his voice. And the scripture over and over and over again talks about how people just hit the ground. They're utterly terrified. We talked about Isaiah 6. That's what happened to Isaiah. He just hears the voice of the Lord. He immediately drops to the ground. And then he is so aware of his sinfulness when he encounters a perfectly holy God that he just starts confessing his sin. God just kind of says a couple words. Boom, he hits the ground. I'm a man of unclean lips. And so we see that that's one of the two things that happen when we get near his presence. The scripture is full of those stories. And yet, when the disciples encountered Jesus in his Glory, when they encountered Jesus in the fullness of his divinity, they were able to talk to him and he talked to them. They were able to touch him, he touched them. They were able to see his face. They got to experience what Adam and Eve lost in the garden because of their sin. They got to experience what the prophets longed for, but God wouldn't let them experience, okay? And that is they got to regain the deepest longing of their heart, which is the face and the embrace of God. Now, that happened. And immediately after that, Jesus takes the disciples. They walk down the mountain. And as they're walking down the mountain, Jesus says something really interesting to Peter, James, and John. And that's kind of what we're going to look at today. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. We'll start kind of where we left off. Jesus has showed up. His face is shining like the sun. Peter starts talking. Peter's like, it's great to be here, Jesus. This is awesome. This is really cool. Let's build some tabernacles. And then God the Father shows up. It's called the theophany. It's whether when God the Father actually physically shows up on the scene. And just like everybody else in history, Peter, James, and John, boom, they hit the ground. All right, so that's where we're going to start off. Mark chapter 9, verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and the voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Matthew in his gospel explains they hit the ground, they were terrified. Jesus walks up to them, touches them, lifts them up, says, don't be afraid. And then verse 8, it says, all at once they looked around and saw no one with them any, anymore except Jesus alone. Now look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the grave. So Jesus is transfigured in front of them. He shows them the fullness of his glory. And they're walking down the mountain. And he looks at them and says, hey, boys, by the way, I don't want you to tell anybody about what you've seen. Now you think about that for just a second. These guys just experienced and saw the face of God for the very first time. These are a group of people that saw the face of God for the first time since Adam and Eve. That's a big deal, Right? And Jesus looks at him and says, hey, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. Now, now church, why would he do that? Why would he do that? I mean, you would think the whole purpose of this thing is, is for people to come to know Jesus and know his identity. So you would think that he would want them to run down the mountain and tell everybody about what they saw. But he, he doesn't. He says, hey, I don't want you to tell anybody. And then he says something. He says, until something happens. Something has to happen first. All right, let's look at the verse again. Mark uh, 9, 9. He says, and they were coming down the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Jesus says, I don't want you to say or tell anybody about what you saw today on the mountain until after I die. 
Jesus said, I have to die first and rise from the grave. And only then do I want you to tell everybody that I'm the Messiah. Okay, now again, why would he do that? To understand why Jesus would do that, to to do this amazing thing, let them see the face of God in all his glory and then say, I don't want you to tell anybody I'm the Messiah until after I die. You have to understand, first and foremost, what the Israelites thought the Messiah was going to do. There's all these prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. And the Israelites, what they thought was going to happen when the Messiah came, they thought that he was going to show up on the scene and either through a big military coup or some, some big political movement that he was going to ride in and, and he was going to rid uh, Israel of all of its enemies and he was going to destroy tyranny and he was going to get rid of the Romans and he was going to establish this kingdom in which the Israelites would reign forever. That's what, and, and to this day, that's what they think the Messiah is going to do. As we speak, the Jewish people do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah because that's not what he did. He didn't roll up on the scene and with some big military movement or political movement, get rid of all of Israel's enemies and establish them on the throne. Now, I shared this story. Uh, this kind of hit home for me. Um, I shared this story a couple of years ago when I did the, my From Israel series where we actually went to Israel and preached in Israel, which was amazing. But one of the things that I got to do is I got to have dinner with a Jewish professor. This is a guy who lived in Israel. He was a professor of uh, Torah studies, which is what we call the Old Testament the Torah studies in one of the premier universities in Israel. We're sitting there having a great time. He's an old guy. It was great. His name was Professor Portin, sweet old man. And uh, he asked me, he said, Matt, you can, he read, told me, he said, you can ask me any question you want to ask me. He goes, what would you as a believer, a Christian, believer in Christ, what would you want to ask me? And so I asked him the question that most of us would want to ask a Jewish professor. I said, Professor, when I read the Torah and the law and the prophets, I didn't call it the Old Testament because they don't think it's the Old Testament. They think it's the Testament. They think it's the Bible. I said, when, when I read the Torah and the Law and the Prophets, and I read the prophecies about the coming Messiah, I said, Professor, it obviously, to me, is talking about Jesus. It describes Jesus through these prophecies in such an amazingly detailed way. It is obvious to me that Jesus is the Messiah. I said, Professor, why do you not believe that Jesus was the one that fulfilled these prophecies. Why do you not believe he was the Messiah? And at that moment, he actually started yelling at me. He was in a sweet way, but he yelled at me. He, he started, he raised his voice in this really bombastic way. He said, I don't believe he's the Messiah because he failed. He said, he's a failed Messiah. He raised his hands up. He did not bring the kingdom to Israel. He's a failed Messiah. In other words, Uh, What Professor Portin was saying is that Jesus did not defeat all of Israel's enemies. Jesus did not establish a kingdom and put Israel on the throne of that kingdom. And so in his mind, Jesus was a failed Messiah. Okay? Now, you and I know, you and I know because we have the New Testament, that Jesus did defeat tyranny and evil. Amen? We believe that. We know that Jesus did establish a new kingdom in which God's people are going to sit on the throne with him and reign with him forever. And we also know that Jesus did not do that through a military coup or a political takeover, but he did it through his suffering and his death. Right? Jesus won by losing. And the idea that the Messiah 
would come and would establish a new kingdom and defeat tyranny and evil through his suffering and his death is absolutely ridiculous to the Jewish people. Even though there's all kinds of prophecies about a suffering servant, it just doesn't make sense to them that he would come and win by losing. Okay, Jesus knew that about the Israelites. He knew that. He knew that that was the vision of what they thought the Messiah was going to do and accomplish. And so he knew that if, if Peter, James, and John walked down off the mountain and started screaming from the rooftops, uh, he's the Messiah, he's God, we know this for a fact, he knew that the Jewish people would have seized him, Jesus, would have seized him immediately and tried to make him into the picture of the Messiah that they had in their heads, which was a military or political leader. And that is not why Jesus came. And Jesus clearly lays out why he came and the purpose for which he came and what he was going to accomplish as the Messiah in Mark chapter 8. Just a few days before the transfiguration, he just flat out told them, I'm the Messiah, this is what I'm going to do. So let's turn there and look at it real quick. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 27. And by the way, Jesus says this and Peter looks at him and just like Professor Portin, Peter said, that's stupid. That's not going to happen. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, you're Satan, get behind me. So this is why. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others one of the prophets. So the disciples look at Jesus and they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist reincarnate. Some people say you're Elijah because there was an Old Testament prophecy that Elijah was going to come back. Uh, that was actually fulfilled in John the Baptist, according to Jesus. The disciples say some people just think you're a prophet. Some people think you're just another guy that's going to speak for God, but that you're not God. And then he looks at the disciples in verse 29 and he asks them, but who do you say that I am? Everybody else thinks I'm just another prophet, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter answered him and said, Jesus, you are the Christ. The word Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Jesus, or rather Peter just plainly says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. The one the Old Testament talks about, you are him. Now watch what Jesus does. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. There he, there he goes again. Don't tell anybody that, Peter. And look at verse 31. He says, he began to teach them. Listen carefully, this is critical. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and three days, three days later uh, rise again. Now, church, I'm going to leave this verse up for just a second. And I want you to look at the word must. The word must right there is maybe one of the most important words, if not the most important word in the history of the world. Right, that word right there, the word must, it modifies and it controls everything else in the rest of the sentence. The word must implies that, that all the things that Jesus lists out after the word must are a necessity. Okay, in other words, Jesus must suffer. He's saying, I must be rejected. I must be killed. I must rise again. Now listen carefully to this. Jesus did not say that the Son of Man would suffer. He said the Son of Man must 
suffer. There's a big difference. Jesus isn't saying, hey guys, I've come to die. Jesus is saying, hey guys, I have to die. I must die. This is a necessity that I die. Why does he keep doing this? Has anybody ever grown up, read the Bible, ever wondered why Jesus would do this cool stuff and look at people and go, don't talk about it? He just, he, just, he just tells them, who do you guys think I am? You are the Messiah. Don't tell anybody. Hey, boys, y'all want to go up on the mountain with me? It's a cool mountain. Let's go. To go up on the top of the mountain. Face starts shining like the sun. Transfiguration. Walking down. Hey, don't tell anybody about that, right? <laughs> I have to die first. I have to die. Why in the world does he have to die before they can talk about it? Here's the thing. Jesus' ultimate plan was not to set his people free from the tyranny of Roman rule. Jesus' ultimate plan was to set his people free from the tyranny of sin and death. And so that brings us back to the question that we started the sermon with. Well, why? Why does Jesus have to die? Why couldn't, why for forgiveness to take place, why for God to forgive us does Jesus have to die? Why, why can't God just get over it? All right, and I want to tell you the answer. And, and the answer here is going to take a minute And I'm going to have to use some modern day illustrations, but I want you to hang with me because at the end of the day, at the foundation of all this is to understand the gospel. To understand why Jesus had to die in order for you to be forgiven is the foundation of the gospel. And if you can get this, it'll change everything. When you start, we we say that word all the time, but it's not the gospel, the gospel, gospel. This is the gospel. Why Jesus had to die. Here's the answer. When someone wrongs you, as a matter of fact, any time a person wrongs another person, in the moment that the wrong takes place, in that moment, a cost or a debt is established. Every single time. It's true. Every single time. When, uh, when somebody wrongs somebody else, there's a cost that is established. And for forgiveness to take place, for real and true forgiveness to take place, somebody, one of the two parties, has to pay the cost. All right, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Give me an example. Let's well, say you're having a party one night at your apartment, and one of your friends, one of your friends drinks too much, right? He has too much to drink. He starts stumbling around like an idiot, and he falls down, and in the process of him falling down, he breaks your lamp, and it's your favorite lamp, all right? He wrongs you. He sins against you, okay? Y'all laugh like you've seen that happen before. Um, so he, brought, he breaks down, falls, falls down, breaks the lamp, commits a sin against you. In that moment that he wrongs you, a cost was established in the relationship. A debt began to occur in that moment, right? Hey, the lamp, why? Because the lamp cost 100 bucks. It's your favorite $100 lamp, and he broke it. So now there's a debt. And once the debt is incurred, one of two things can happen in that moment. Okay, number one, either you can make him pay the cost of the lamp. You can say, hey, man, you, you got drunk. You broke my lamp. It was $100. Pay me now, please. Or... Or you can forgive him. Okay, you can say, I forgive you. You don't have to pay the cost. Okay, but if you do that, you forgive him, you say, I, you don't have to pay that $100. What happened to the $100? What happened to the $100? Essentially, at the end of the day, the cost was still there. You just paid it. When you forgave him, the cost was there, but you absorbed the cost. You didn't make him pay the cost. You absorbed the cost. When somebody wrongs you, 
a cost is always incurred and either they are going to pay the price or you are going to pay the price. But either way, someone of the two parties is going to absorb the cost. Okay? Every single solitary time, somebody has to pay it, either them or you. Okay? Now, who does the Bible say that you and I have wronged? Who does the scripture describe that everybody in this room, who does the scripture say everybody in this room has sinned against? Okay, that's a question. Who is it? God. Scripture says that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. That's how this whole thing got started in the garden. We sinned against God, okay? And the moment, the first time you sinned against the Lord, in that moment a debt was established, a cost was incurred the first time you sinned. Now, here's another question. What does the scripture say was the cost that was incurred when you sinned against God? Okay, it's not a hundred bucks. I'll just give you a little tip. It's not a hundred dollars. It's a bigger deal than breaking a lamp. You sinned against God. You wronged God. We've learned that every time somebody wrongs somebody else, a debt is incurred. What was the debt that was incurred when you sinned? The scripture tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Don't turn there. We're just going to show it. It says, for the wages, that's the payment. The wages of sin is death. Okay, the moment you sinned, the moment you wronged God for the first time, the cost that was established right there, the debt that occurred in that moment is not a hundred bucks. The scripture said it is death. And that is a payment. That death payment is a payment that must be paid in order for real true forgiveness and reconciliation to happen between you and God. It's death. Now, that brings us to another question. Again, why is it so severe? Why death? Why in the moment that we sin against God is death the payment? Here's the answer. Okay, and I've shared this illustration before a couple of times over the years, but I think it goes a long way in helping us understand why death is the payment that must be paid for sin. The punishment or the payment for sin or wrong is always equivalent to the authority and the power of the person that's been wronged. Okay, let me say that again. The punishment or a payment for a sin is always equivalent to the authority or the power of the person that's been wronged. All right, I want to illustrate this for you. Let's pick a sin. All right, I'm going to pick a sin for you because all of us in the room have done this particular sin at some point in time in our lives and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have lied probably at some point. Not probably. We have all lied at some point in time in our lives. And if you're sitting there going, I've never lied, you're lying and now you qualify. All right, so you're good. So you can... Apply this to your life. So let's pick a sin, lying. God said in his Ten Commandments, thou shalt not bear false witness. In other words, hey, don't lie. So let's, uh, let's pretend you lied to your friend. What's the payment, the cost that's incurred when you lie to a friend? What's the payment that, what, what, what might happen? What are the consequences of you lying to a friend? Well, maybe they get mad at you, okay? Or maybe really, really severe situation, you're no longer friends with them. It's not that big of a penalty because your friend has very little, if any, power or authority in your life. And the punishment for sin is always equivalent to the authority and the power of the one he's sinned against. All right, so let's, let's take the same sin lying, but let's up the authority a little bit. All right, so let's say, for instance, you lie to your boss at work. For some crazy reason, you uh, do not give the whole truth or you outright lie to your boss. What are the consequences 
of that sin. You lie to your boss. Well, you probably lose your job. You get fired. Now think about it though. It's the same exact sin. But you didn't lie to your friend, you lied to your boss. And the, and the consequences are always equal to the authority and the power of the person that's sinned against. So when you lie to your boss, same sin, bigger penalty. Okay, let's take the same sin, but let's up the authority again. Let's take the, the United States of America. What happens when you lie to the country? Let's say you lie to a grand jury or you lie to the president, you commit treason, perjury. What happens then? You, you go to jail. Maybe even get the death penalty. But it's the same sin, you just lied. But the problem is it's a much bigger penalty because the, the consequence is always equal to the authority and the power. And you didn't lie to your, your parents. You didn't lie to your friend. You didn't lie to a cop. You didn't lie to your boss. You lied to the United States of America. Bigger the authority, bigger the consequence. It's equal. Let's go up one more time. Same sin. Lying. God said, do not lie. That's a sin. But all of us, we discovered, have lied. And so we have sinned and we've wronged God. Here's the question. How big is the authority and the power of God? Okay, the authority and the power of God is not just big. The authority and the power of God is infinite. He has an infinite authority and power. The power of the United States of America is like a puddle of water compared to the Pacific Ocean of the authority and the power of God. And so when you lied, you didn't lie to your boss or your parents or your friend. You lied to an infinite authority and power. And so with the consequences of your sin and your wrong are always equal to the authority and the power of the person you sin against. We sin against an infinitely powerful God. Therefore, our consequences must be equal to the offense which are Infinite, okay? Death. And not just death, but Romans 6.23 in the Greek, it actually means eternal death. For the wages of sin is eternal death, and now that all makes sense. So here's the thing. The payment now, because you wronged God when you lied, the payment, the debt has, has, has occurred, and now the payment must be paid. The payment must be paid. In order for forgiveness to happen between you and God, somebody... And the two parties must die. They must die. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered into the picture, and then every one of us that sinned ever since then, and the moment that sin, that wrong takes place, God in that moment has a choice. He has a choice. Either he can make you pay the payment of your sin and kill you, and he could have done that because he's God. He could have made you pay the payment for your sin or the, the choice he also had was this, is that he could come to this earth and he could become flesh and he could live a perfect life and then he could come and he could take our place and he could die and pay the penalty of death for us. That was the choice. And that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. And that's why on the night before he actually died, the night before he walked to the cross, he's hanging out with his disciples around a table and he, and he took some bread and, and right in front of them, and he, he began to break it in half. It's a Passover supper and he took some bread and he broke it and he held it up to them. And he said, guys, I know you've been doing this Passover supper your whole life, but I want you guys to know what this is a picture of. This is my body that is going to be broken 
for you. I came so that my body can be broken for you. Not that yours would be broken, but mine for you. And he took a cup and he, and he lifted it up and he said, this, this is a cup, the cup of the new covenant. It's a picture of my blood and tomorrow it's going to be poured out. My blood is going to be shed for you, for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And he got up from the table and he went to the Garden of Eden and he separated himself from the disciples. And the scripture said he got on his hands and knees because the, the fullness of what he was about to do was hitting him. The scripture says that in, in just a few hours, he was going to become sin on our behalf so that we can become the righteousness of God. And that hit Jesus that he was going to become sin. Every single sin that we have ever committed, every lie, every moment of lust, every moment of adultery, every murder, every rape, every war, all of those sins he would become. And in the moment that he became sin, he would be face to face with the Father. And the Father would pour out his wrath because of our sin on the Son. And in the Garden of Eden, that hit Jesus. And he began to ask God, God, is there any other way? Is there any other way that we can do this? Somebody's got to pay the cost. Either they have to pay the cost of death or I have to pay the cost of death. But Lord, is there any other way that this can be done? And God looked at his son and said, son, there is no other way. For us to buy it back. You've got to do it. And he said, Lord, it's not my will, but your will be done. And he stood up from the garden. And he walked to the cross. And he never wavered ever again. And for six hours, he hung on that cross. Was tortured brutally. Crucified. Hung on the cross. At the end of the six hours, he cried out with a loud voice, It is accomplished. What I came to do, it's done. And then he breathed his last and he died. And three days later, he rose again, conquering death forever. Why did Jesus have to die? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not but through him have eternal life. Church, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. You see, every other religion in the world is defined by men and women who are trying their hardest to pay the penalty of their sin, to earn their way back to God, but can't. Every other religion in the world, it's a picture. It's the story of man and woman trying desperately to earn God's favor, to pay back the price that was incurred. But the gospel is not that at all. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. The gospel is the good news that God didn't stand here with his arms folded saying, work your way back to me, be good, be good. The gospel is the story of a God who came to us. And then when given the choice, he paid the penalty for he took our place. He died our debt. He paid the price. So if you're here today and you are not a believer, not a Christian, I want you to know what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ. It is not a person that tries their hardest to follow all the rules and regulations and, and hide from God when you don't. That's every other religion. 
Christianity is a story. It's a gospel. It's a message. It's a person who understands Jesus came. He paid the penalty in full for all my sin. And now, this is here it is, you trust in him. That's it. You say, God, I trust in you for my salvation. I'm a sinner, but you came and you died. You paid the penalty. You paid the cost for my sin. And so I just trust my eternity to you. And then you tell him you want to follow him the rest of your life. And the scripture says that in that moment that you do that, he indwells you with his spirit and he gives you abundant life until the moment you breathe your last and then you wake up in the arms of Jesus and you will spend eternity with him. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. For those of you in the room who are believers, who who have trusted into Jesus and what he's done. Man, I've been praying for you all week that the gospel would just mess you up today. That it would hit you, that you wouldn't go through just another day. Oh, great church service, let's go to lunch. That it would hit you. Jesus paid it all. Let's pray. I mean, I, would, I think it just would be amazing this morning if today if you would just take just a moment and say thank you to Jesus. He had a choice. When the debt was established, God could have ended it right there. rebellious people that deserved infinite death and infinite punishment he said nope I love them too much I'm going to come to them I'm going to pay the debt for them I'm going to die maybe you just need to say thank you maybe some of you need to trust in Jesus for your salvation do that right now Jesus, I thank you for the gospel. I don't, I don't have words to say thank you for what you've done. I, I just can't get my mind around the fact that you did this. That you came to us. That you took our place. That you paid our debt. That you paid the price. That you went through the cross for us. It's unbelievable. But Jesus, I believe. I believe. And so I trust in you for my salvation today. I pray that many in this room would. Lord, it's a great pleasure now to stop and sing to you, to give you our words, our emotion, our heart, voices, because of what you've done. You're worthy of all our glory that we can give to you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.